Hi, everybody. Welcome to North Coast Chronicles podcast, Tales from the Great Lakes. I'm your host, Helen Broll. Please join me every month on the American Shoreline Podcast Network as we share the nature, history, folklore, and charm of the Great Lakes, America's fourth seacoast. We're so grateful that North Coast Chronicles is on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Be sure to check out the entire collection of podcasts on ASPN related to our oceans, coasts, inland seas, and natural resources at coastalnewstoday.com. Today's podcast is called Climate Migration and the Great Lakes. We are so grateful to have as our guest today, Ms. Rachel Jacobson. She is the Deputy Director of the American Society of Adaptation Professionals. And Rachel leads the development, implementation, and continuous improvement of ASAP's programs to promote peer learning, advance effective adaptation practice, and build cohesion across the field of climate change adaptation. She holds a BA, MPP, and MS degrees from the University of Michigan, Go Blue, and a Certificate of Environmental Law and Regulation from the University of Washington. Rachel lives in Ann Arbor, Michigan. We're so happy about that. So welcome, Rachel. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Helen. And with us, as always, is our trusty engineer and my talented co-producer, Tyler Buckingham. Hi, Tyler. Hey, Helen. How's it going? Good, good. Are you ready for the Memorial Weekend holiday? I am ready. I am ready for the start of summer, a long weekend, uh, and a meaningful weekend here. Memorial Day is a day of memory. And um, I once worked with a, a general, I've worked with many generals um, in the Army, who was offended when you would say, have a happy hol- Memorial Weekend. He would make it clear that Memorial Day was based on, you know, um, uh, being not somber, but um, sensitive to the nature of why we have Memorial Day. So I appreciate that. However, fact is, it is a three-day weekend for most of us, uh, and it is the start, kind of unofficial start of the summer. So I do hope everybody has um, a happy and healthy holiday weekend. But Tyler, this episode is a momentous occasion. Can you guess why? I cannot guess why. (laughs) It is the 12th episode of North Coast Chronicles. And that means we've been doing this podcast for a full year. So congratulations to us. Congratulations to us. Congratulations to you, Helen. Job well done. Well, you're very sweet. It, it's tremendously fun and entertaining to record, but we've learned so much along the way. Our first episode was on mayflies, sometimes called Canadian soldiers or American soldiers, as they say in Canada. And right about now is when they rise out of the water to mate. We also had a few episodes around Great Lakes Maritime, including an interview with my baby brother, Captain Russ Brohl, and the building of the Welland Canal and a live musical set of maritime songs with Lee Murdoch. We talked to a number of conservation heroes in the Great Lakes doing amazing work. And we learned about life in the lakes during the Golden Age and the late 1800s and how climate change was impacting the lake they call Gitchigumi, which is what Lake Tyler? Lake Superior, of course. Yay. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, Gitchigumi is Lake Superior. So a year of podcasts feels like an achievement, but it is also a time to reflect on the future. And our listenership is on the rise. I'm so pleased about that. And thank you so much for all of you who come back to listen to us every month. And there's so much more about the Great Lakes to talk about. And we really do need input from our listeners. Uh, Tyler and I had a nice conversation about this. What do we want for the second year? We want to hear from you. We welcome suggestions for episode topics. And frankly, ideas about sponsorship or ways in which we can support this effort. Um, We don't get paid or... uh, I don't get paid, and um, that's quite all right because it is a labor of love. Um, uh, And how can the American Shoreline Podcast Network 
or a podcast qualify for grant support? And maybe some of you out there might know if that's an area in which um, there might be some association. But in any case, we'd love to hear from you. So please get a hold of us at northcoastchronicles at gmail.com if you have some ideas to share. Thank you. Now, our last episode was Tales from the Lake of Shining Waters with Mark Matson. He is the president and CEO of Swim, Drink, Fish. Mark works on the Canadian side of Lake Ontario, which is the Lake of Shining Waters. And Mark reminded us that traditional pollutants like combined sewer overflows are still an issue. And if you can't swim in an area or take drinking water from it or fish in it, then there's still a lot of work to do. What was your impression, Tyler? Well, I loved his the simplicity of that uh, slogan, but I also really enjoyed uh, learning about Lake Ontario, the Lake of Shining Waters, and just how beautiful the lake is. It's, I think, probably the most overlooked Great Lake, maybe, from a beauty standpoint. Uh, but the truth is, there's some gorgeous... Uh, lakefront there right in kind of urban settings that's absolutely beautiful and i thought mark did an amazing job of summarizing the the value of of the lake as a natural feature yeah he was you could tell he was impassioned and is dedicated she's 30 years of his life as many have in the great lakes to trying to make things better but and he did share some good news and that while there's a lot to be done the people are certainly swimming and fishing in the lake. And his organization keeps an inventory of the usable beaches or the beaches that are actively used around Lake Ontario. And that has inspired us to do a podcast on the best beaches in the Great Lakes. And I can't wait to do that. Now, Tyler, it was your idea to do a show on climate migration in the Great Lakes. And thank you for the suggestion. But what's the context for this idea? What brought you to it? Well, uh, I guess the, the the simple truth is one of my best friends and uh, guest on the American Shoreline Podcast Network in the past, Andra Belknap, uh, her mother is from Michigan originally, grew up, she lives out in Southern California now, she raised her family out there, that's how I came to know Andra, we grew up in the same small town, and uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you haven't been paying attention, there's a bit of a water shortage going on right now in Southern California. And uh, over the past several years, I've started to hear rumblings and rumors that Andrew's mother was uh, looking for real estate, some lakefront water access property on the Great Lakes. And over the past couple years, since the start of the pandemic, she started taking road trips out to the Great Lakes looking for property. And in fact, this year, she purchased a place on the Upper Peninsula uh, following through on this now multi-year mission. And I mean, I know she's not alone. I've, I've heard lots of people uh, in California and elsewhere doing, you know, producing shows on ASPN. I hear a lot of people talking about moving to where there's the water, uh, specifically uh, a lot of attention in the Great Lakes region, Helen. So I just thought, you know, we got to talk about this on North Coast Chronicles Tales of the Great Lakes. What's going on up there? Well, it's fascinating that your friend's mother chose the Upper Peninsula. I mean, that's that's. I mean, it it is a dramatic difference from where she might be in California. So I find that interesting that she did her homework and went to all these places that she ended up there. But it is beautiful. And it will be an extraordinary experience for her. So I'm excited. I hope she gets to see things like moose and bears and gets to go fishing. I did do a little homework. I tried to kind of get some sense of, of the topic. It wasn't really something that I had thought too much about with the Great Lakes, frankly, until you mentioned it. But I read that a year ago, um, Detroit Public Television, they posted an article on their website posturing if the Great Lakes was a climate refuge. 
they noted that among the leaders in developing scientific and analytical tools for anticipating human migration in the United States is the American Society of Adaptation Professionals, or ASAP. And as introduced earlier, we have with us today, Ms. Rachel Jacobson. She's the deputy director of ASAP. Hey, Rachel, I read that ASAP is a relatively young organization. Tell us about it. Sure. Well, thanks again so much for having me, Helen. And ASAP is a relatively young organization. Um, we were kind of conceived of as an idea around 2011. Um, <clears throat> and for several years, we were incubated by the Institute for Sustainable Communities as a program inside their organization. Um, and then in December of 2017, we received um, a grant from the Kresge Foundation, which allowed us to spin off from ISC into our own organization. Um, and so we have been operating as our own 501c3 since that time. And ASAP, um, we do a lot of things, but at our core, what we're really about is connecting and supporting the people who do climate change adaptation work the people who are building climate resilience for communities, ecosystems, economies, all across North America. Um, and we have most of our membership, we are a membership organization, and most of our membership is concentrated here in the US, and we have a huge cohort of folks in the Great Lakes region. Um, and that's a function of a few things. Um, one of which is that um, many wonderful leaders from within our organization, as well as really exceptional leaders throughout the adaptation field um, are either from this region or have gone to school in this region. Um, and so we're really grateful to kind of have that expertise and talent here in the Great Lakes um, and, of course, in my home state of Michigan. Um, uh, and, and to have a lot of our work then be influenced uh, by by the interests um, and the passions of the folks who who live here right right here in the Great Lakes. I just want to clarify that kind of in reading your documentation that that ASAP um, doesn't really document climate change disruptions per se, um, but you raise funds and convene researchers who anticipate you know, that warming winters, ample reserves of fresh water, forests, uh, not prone to wildfires, et cetera, will attract millions of new residents to the Great Lakes. But is your work specifically Great Lakes centered because you're based out of, uh, out of the Great Lakes? Yeah. So, I mean... <laughs> I I actually think it would be great for us to back up a minute and I can tell you a little bit more about how we operate at ASAP and how we ended up doing climate migration work and specifically climate migration work that focuses on in-migration to the Great Lakes. How does that sound? Sounds great. So yeah, so here at ASAP, as I mentioned, we are um, a membership association um, and we we provide a lot of the same services as um, you would expect a professional association to provide. We do training and education and peer learning. Um, and then, but at our core, what we, what we are and what we do is we operate as a social impact network. So we're all about bringing people together across contexts. And we do that for a bunch of different topics. Um, and you can see that kind of most notably in our peer learning groups that we run. Um, we have peer learning groups that span a bunch of different topics in the climate adaptation field and that are important to the people who do the work of climate adaptation. Um, so for example, we have 
um, folks who convene to talk about uh, what does it mean to be working in a private sector company and doing climate adaptation work. Um, we have folks that uh, might convene to talk about what does it mean to be doing work on green infrastructure in the context of climate adaptation. Um, and we had a group um, that was started by several ASAP members um, about five years ago called our Climate Migration and Managed Retreat Group. Um, so we already knew that climate migration was a really strong interest interest um, here in the network. And, um, and that group um, brought in brought in speakers, um, it had workshops and discussions. Um, and, and one thing that resonated and, and really rose to the top in that group um, was the fact that it's really hard to predict climate migration and to understand when and how people will be moving and who exactly is gonna be moving in response to climate impacts. Um, and so as ASAP was thinking about how could we expand our programming in this space, we kind of brought together um, you know, that kind of expertise, excuse me, expertise and passion um, that we had in the region um, because of the uh, wonderful leaders in our network who are based here or who have some sort of ties here. Um, and, and we were thinking about what, what if we want to bring people together across contexts, what, how could we do that in a way that would support um, the the research and practice of climate migration? Um, and kind of what we came up with was that we really needed to bring together the people who are studying climate impacts, so climatologists themselves and, and people who work um, more on the applied side and, and the impact side of things, um, and even the social science side of things, with demographers, people who study migration, um, and in particular, environmental migration, um, but all types of, of migration. And when we brought those people together, what we saw was that um, there hadn't there hadn't been a lot of spaces um, up until when ASAP started uh, to work on this topic that was fostering a place where 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 folks from those two areas could come together um, and really um, learn from one another and create new tools and resources that would help us understand um, who might be migrating in response to climate impacts, where they might be going, um, and who those people are. And I'm, I'm guessing, uh, it sounds like the perfect idea, you're marrying up applied, um, at, like you said, uh, applied science with demographers, um, and hopefully some policy um, decision makers as well. Uh, and given that climate crosses so many disciplines, um, trying to hone that in uh, specifically with migration sounds like a great way to see where you overlap and can people can value add they work value add the work they do, but also to find gaps. Now, if I could ask, um, what is climate migration? It sounds like a simple question, but I am interested to know from your perspective how you define it. Yeah, well, when I think about climate migration, um, you know, I think about I think first and foremost about the migration piece of that. So. You know, people have been moving for as long as there have been people. Um, and as long as there have been people, we have seen migration um, and people move for all sorts of reasons. And so when I think about climate migration, I start first and foremost with migration. We take it as a given that people are going to move. And then we want to figure out what are the drivers of that? 
why do people move? Um, and in migration, you know, there's kind of two big buckets in terms of why people are move, why people move, or what influences them to move, and we. We call those push factors and pull factors. Um, so the things that would cause people to make a decision to leave a place, um, so that's a push factor. Um, so maybe they lose their job. Maybe um, you know the some there is a natural disaster in that place. And then the pull factors. So what's going to pull them to go to a different place? Um, maybe there is a lot of economic opportunity, a lot of jobs in their field in that new place. Maybe they have family um, in that new place or. Um, they're part of a culture where there are a lot of other folks who are part of that same culture in that new place. So those are our pull factors. Um, and so when we think about climate migration, we can think about the climate related both push factors and pull factors. So we just talked about natural disasters. Of course, we can have climate induced natural disasters um, and we can have slower onset climate events that could be push factors. Um, and then we can have climate pull factors as well. And that's where the idea of climate migration into the Great Lakes um, becomes really salient because the Great Lakes has what we like to call climate amenities. There are, and uh, you know, a, as we know, a ton of great things about living in this region um, with respect to both, both the weather and the climate, although the weather on any given day who knows, <laughs> May in Michigan. But, um, you know, there are a lot of climate amenities here in the Great Lakes. Things like, of course, um, access to fresh water. We know that um, as um, climate impacts are felt throughout the country, um, we will probably have relatively fewer negative climate impacts here. We also know that we can expect to see um, in some areas and for some crops, um, you know, um, more favorable growing conditions, for example. So, you know, various reasons why um, someone might feel pulled uh, to move here to the Great Lakes um, that are related to climate. I uh, read on Wired.com, they, they referred to the Great Lakes as having curb appeal, <laughs> which I thought was kind of cute um, because there's lots of water and, you know, I'm, I'm kind of thinking lots of fresh water, minor or no earthquakes and, you know, rare raging fires. Right in it there is a, enough reason for someone to move from California to the Great Lakes. How would you then define a refuge? And what are some of the factors that define a refuge? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, Helen. And I will say, I don't the word refuge hasn't come up a lot in our work. Our work has focused, you know, largely on domestic migration. Um, so we have had some of the folks that we've worked with who have, you know, focused a little bit on, you know, um, issues or impacts related to international immigration. Um, but mostly what we focused on is domestic migration. So people moving from within different places here in the U.S. Um, and when I think of refuge, of course, I, well, not of course, but for me, you know, my immediate thought is refugee. And um, and so that's like, you know, a whole other area of study um, in terms of the legal status of people who are moving because of climate impacts where they were previously living. Um, but then, of course, we can use the word climate refuge in a totally different way, right? Um, we can think about, you know, there's a, um, you know, a term that we 
you know, know, which is um, habitat refugia, for example. So little pockets of places um, that can be more amenable and have the right conditions for, you know, certain species to thrive. Um, and I think that when we think about the, the word climate refuge and, and what it connotes, we can think about that too, right? The idea, and again, going back to the phrase climate amenities. Um, I think that those two phrases, you know, can have a lot of the same connotations. Um, as far as I'm aware, there's no definition of climate refuge. Um, I do think it's more of a, a term of art that folks are using to kind of describe, um, you know, again, a place with either ideal or at least relatively better <laughs> climate conditions um, where people uh, their lives and their livelihoods can thrive as we see climate impacts worsening around us um, in a lot of places here in the U.S. and also here in the Great Lakes. And I do think that that's, you know, I hope we'll have a chance to get into that, that of course we are experiencing climate impacts, negative climate impacts here in the Great Lakes. Um, and, and so, you know, that's something that we have to take into account as well. Yeah, yeah, fair. I, I like this, this statement, climate amenities. The Great Lakes has climate amenities. I think I appreciate your point about using the term refuge because um, it can be very specific. So in this case, I would say, yeah, the Great Lakes has climate amenities. But like you said, um, the Great Lakes is also um, a bit in peril. I mean, I can think of some obvious dangers of the perception of the Great Lakes as the next um, migration location. But what are some of the things that you're seeing or that you consider um, when you kind of look at the Great Lakes as a migration location? Yeah. So, I mean, you sort of, you mentioned obvious dangers and I think, you know, like putting a positive spin on that is, you know, if we don't plan adequately and appropriately for an influx of people to the region, then we will have a lot of problems. We will have, you know, problems like our current problems will be exacerbated um, and we can create new problems. So I guess I would love to kind of frame this by saying we have an opportunity right now when we're not yet seeing really significant influxes of population. Um, this is our opportunity to plan. It's our opportunity to plan both to be able to welcome the people who may choose to come here um, because they're seeking safety and they're seeking those climate amenities really to, to make sure that they can continue their lives and livelihoods. Um, and we also have an opportunity to plan to transform this region into what we want it to be. Um, and I just, I love this show and I love the fact that I'm on this show because I am, I was born and raised in Michigan and I spent my summers in Ontario and I was a canoe guide um, on Lake Huron and I, you know, I love the Great Lakes, right? But the fact remains that we have lots of problems here. Um, and so thinking about how do we poten welcome potentially a large influx of people into the region, I like to think about it as our opportunity to address the problems we have and transform into an even better and stronger region. You know, for those of us who grew up around the Great Lakes, as you did, um, and particularly those of us who spent a lot of time in the resort vacation areas, and we were used to large temporary summer influx of people, and we all just couldn't wait for September and they'd all go away. You know, but I read that Buffalo is proclaiming itself to be a climate haven. Now, 
to what is your understanding of the extent to which cities or regional areas in the Great Lakes are preparing themselves for the possibility of a large permanent influx from climate migration? Yeah, well, I think that cities that have leadership that really want to think ahead and to want to plan long term are the cities where you see that most strongly. So Buffalo is a great example. Duluth is another example. Even here in Ann Arbor is another great example. And these are cities um, generally that are thinking about, um, you know, I mean, I think there's there are a couple of factors that are in play. So one is, you know, right now what we are experiencing is not in migration. What we're experiencing is out migration, um, you know, as we all know, uh, the Great Lakes region and then the Rust Belt more broadly has been, you know, losing people for <laughs> a long time. Um, and so we have these cities with what I like to call infrastructure with big bones, right? Um, big boned infrastructure that does have the ability, you know, especially in our urban areas, to accommodate more people. Not only that, because you know, in general, overall, we have been losing population. Of course, that has an impact on our economy, um, you know. And so there is a strong um, both need and interest in in bringing in more workers. I think also, you know, again. You know, I do want to highlight the leadership in these cities. Um, these, and I have had the privilege of speaking to leaders in many of these cities. And you know, these are leaders who are also, you know, thinking about, for example, racial segregation, right? And again, like going back to this opportunity to transform a lot of these cities that are compare, uh, excuse me, um, declaring themselves, you know, um, climate havens when they say the word haven, you know, it's, it is more on the refuge side than the climate amenities side, right? It's not just a nice thing and a nice place for people who have the means to get up and move to come. It's also a place where, where leaders in these cities are saying, we want to welcome people. We want to welcome people who need a safer place to live. Um, and we are going to put the work in to make sure that our city is the kind of place where people will both feel welcomed and they'll have their needs met when they get here. Meaning we'll have affordable housing um, for folks um, who need to access housing um, in that way. We'll have, you know, we will support people in getting jobs, you know, no matter whether or not they come with the exact skills that we need right now in our economy. So, you know, being a climate haven, I think, I don't want to speak for these cities, but I will say that I have been inspired by these cities um, in the way they talk about being a climate haven as being a welcoming place um, for for people who are looking who need to move somewhere that's that has a safer climate um, and that is experiencing fewer detrimental climate impacts um, to be able to go, no matter who they are, no matter what they bring with them, no matter to the extent they can you know, maybe afford to live in that place. The Great Lakes certainly has its rust belt, but it is also a water belt um, because it has you know, climate amenities. Um, now, I read that in terms of migration because of um, climate change, I read that around 25,000 migrants flood Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria in 2017. A lot of them settled in Orlando, Florida, and as many as 5,000 moved to that climate haven of Buffalo. So um, it can appreciate that planning ahead based upon what they'd experienced already makes a lot of sense. Um, in terms of jobs, 
Um, now, Tyler's friend's mother, I'm kind of guessing perhaps she's retired um, um, or people who are retired. It's one thing to move someplace um, just to have a wonderful um, standard of living or just a great life in a beautiful place. But if you're a person or a family that has to move where there is work, um, are you? where is your perception? I mean, as you look at the Great Lakes as a whole, um, you talked about Buffalo and Duluth because they're seeking to become perhaps um, um, climate havens. Um, but where do you think um, the work is? Or are you connecting jobs yet on the migration um, concept and where the combined climate migration mixes with job opportunities in the Great Lakes? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think that it's really important also, you know, you mentioned folks that have relocated after disaster, um, you know, and specifically climate-induced disasters. And, um, you know, we we do have a lot of knowledge and experience um, in terms of like, what does it mean to help people to, to relocate and to, you know, find their place in a new city, in a new town, um, to make sure that they do have a job um, where you know they can support themselves and their family, and they're also contributing to the economy. So I think like one thing is that we have models for that. We have models for how to do it well, and we have models for how to do it poorly. And um, and and I think we absolutely need to be looking at you know disaster recovery, resettlement efforts. Um, and I will highlight, you know, just based on, you know, this kind of part of our conversation and what we were just talking about, Welcoming America is another wonderful organization that works on climate migration and has some really, really great tools um, around, you know, what does it mean to do kind of equitable resettlement work and make sure that people can, you know, get situated in a new place. There are tons and tons of organizations that do that work, again, both with folks who have been um, displaced and need to move somewhere else here in the US and also people coming here from other countries. Um, and then I'll say um, two more things on this. So one is that um, we, we had the privilege of hearing from um, a couple of state demographers throughout the course of our uh, work on climate migration. And, um, you know, again, as I was saying earlier, like, you know, for the most part, this region has been overall like, and it's true, I think in every state, don't quote, don't quote me on that. Um, but, you know, many, many states like overall are losing population. So, um, you know, yes, absolutely. Tying the economic needs of a particular state or place within the region um, and, and getting folks who are coming in to be able to kind of you know, plug in to that network to, to fill those jobs that are needed in the economy. I think there's a huge opportunity for that to happen. And I think that, um, you know, as we've heard both from state demographers as well as, as well as some industry representatives from throughout the region, like there is a need. There is a need for workers with all types of skills and all skill levels. Um, so I think that overall, we can say that there um, there's a good kind of match here between the idea of the opportunity of, of more people coming in and then being able to integrate them into the economy um, to help make the economy stronger. But then I'll, I'll just say one more thing on this, which is I think that we have to, we absolutely have to have um, a, a justice lens on this work, an equity lens on this work, and a humanitarian lens on this work. And what that means, you know, we like to um, think, speak about it and think about it from a mobility rights perspective. And what that means to us is that, 
you know, we want to, we want to, um, as we do work on climate migration and migration more broadly, be thinking about kind of creating this culture and this understanding where we know that people are going to have to move. Um, and so it's our responsibility to make sure that they can move, that they have the means to move, and that they are supported in the new place that they move to, irrespective of what contribution they do or could or can make to the economy, that we have to be looking at those people as people. Um, and I think I love that you brought up the example, Tyler, um, of your friend's mom, because actually my in-laws live in Southern California as well. And I've been telling them for years that they should move to Michigan. Um, no, not only because it would be nice if we could have like all my kids' grandparents just, you know, be in the same room all the time. Um, you know, so I, I think absolutely the idea that like, you're getting ready for retirement and just like being in a safer place um, makes makes a lot of sense to me, um, you know, but a lot of people won't have the choice, right? Like, I mean, Helen, you mentioned folks, you know, fleeing from Hurricane Maria, like people don't always have the choice. And the more we focus on the freedom and the ability to move and making sure that people who maybe don't have the money to travel and to resettle on their own, that there are systems in place that can provide for them. Um, it's really important. I appreciate your point about, uh, you know, it's we have to be responsible uh, about cultures and understanding. But but isn't the reality a bit that communities <clears throat> want to bring in, bring in high-skilled people, um, people with money, um, and isn't there a real concern that uh, gentrification will actually exclude um, underrepresented communities and perhaps the whole point of environmental justice or mobility rights can go out the window. So as, as I, I can see where communities are concerned. With, there is a concern that the people who live there will be pushed out by people who have more um, resources. Absolutely. I'm, I mean, I'm so glad you brought that up. Gentrification is an enormous concern. And the folks that we talked to, you know, we talked to a few folks, you know, particularly in Detroit, when we were um, getting perspectives from people about climate migration. And it was interesting, because I, I think, you know, this is a lot of people are starting to think about this for the first time. And of course, like they're connecting it to their current and past experiences. And I mean, the idea that Lots of people will be moving here, including and probably, you know, most of them, like people with means, at least in the beginning. Um, it's it's hugely problematic that, you know, as we build, as cities get built up due to an influx of population, that that will absolutely, you know, I mean, it's it's very hard to see how that would not contribute to gentrification and displacement of people who currently live in those urban areas um, without interventions, right? And I mean, I think that's where we want to be really intentional about connecting climate migration work to affordable housing work. And there actually are, as you could probably imagine, or maybe you've explored before, like lots of connections between climate adaptation, climate resilience work, and affordable housing. Um, and now as we're, you know, more and more exploring the topic of climate migration here at ASAP, um, you know, we're seeing yet again just how important um, it is to connect the work that we do 
as climate change adaptation and climate resilience professionals to the affordable housing space. Um, and so absolutely, um, I'm glad that you mentioned that. And I don't want to say that the answer is affordable housing, but certainly that you know has to be part of the system that we build um, if we are planning for and expecting more people to move to the region. When people talk about moving to the climate amenities of the Great Lakes, they're not usually talking about to, you know, the Rust Belt areas that have not necessarily bounced back, right? They're they're talking about the you know the the beautiful portions up north um, that um, you know it's just all nature all the time. So how do those communities compete? They really do need the businesses to come back and climate may be one of the many reasons they may want to do that. It may be um, availability of a workforce to do that. But are are there those areas that are currently depressed competing with those that are not um, in order to manage that? And I'm wondering if affordable housing is kind of the key. Yeah, that's such an interesting question. And I, I think it's really, really valuable for us to talk about, like, what does this look like in you know, rural areas in, you know, areas that have, you know, historically been, um, you know, small towns connected to recreation and, um, you know, versus what it means for um, urban areas and, you know, Rust Belt cities. I absolutely, because they're, they are two, they're definitely two different stories. Um, And, you know, in terms of, um, you know, let's start with, what you framed as competition. Um, And again, I I would love for us to be thinking about this as opportunity. And I think that one way that we can think about bringing opportunity to smaller towns in, in rural areas of the Great Lakes that are, you know, really close to the natural resources um, that we know and love so much in the region is broadband. And I don't know if you thought that broadband would come into this conversation, but maybe you did because you work in a lot of, you know, with a lot of rural towns. But, you know, the more that we can create um, more widespread access to broadband, the better we'll be able to, um, you know, attract people to rural towns and like make sure that there is more opportunity. So, for example, you know, I think there are positives and negatives to the fact that people now you know, in many jobs can work from home. There are some positive impacts and some negative impacts on rural towns. Um, But the greater access to broadband in these places, the more that people will be able to move there, contribute to the local economy, um, you know, while um, working in jobs that um, may or may not be based right there, um, and then be able to both be enjoying as well as caring for Um, the natural resources around them. Um, I think, you know, one thing that we haven't quite touched on yet is land use. Um, Land use is a huge part of this story, right? Um, You know, we talked about affordable housing. Obviously, that's like one type of choice within land use. But of course, how, you know, the land use choices that we make in relationship to their impacts on our natural resources are so critical to how we plan um, responsibly and effectively and equitably for um, an influx of population to the region, especially people moving to smaller towns in the Great Lakes. And um, of course, when we think about land use, there are a lot of different dimensions that come in. So, you know, 
as towns grow or built get built up, obviously like changing the way that storm water runs off and those water quality impacts to you know both the Great Lakes and inland lakes and rivers. Um, we can also think about you know as towns either build out or build up, um, but especially if they're building out, you know how does that that land use pressure affect natural resource industries. Um, we talked to a lot of foresters, for example, um, you know, and thinking about like the forestry industry is already experiencing a lot of pressures um, with respect to land use, you know, land conversions. So thinking about that, of course, thinking about Native American treaty rights, um, you know, as more and different people um, who are not part of tribal communities, Moving to places that are, you know, bordering lands, Native American lands, where treaty rights are and places where treaty rights are practiced, you know, how do those interactions start to change? How do the land use pressures start to change? So those are all things that we have to be thinking about. Well, well you've just opened a whole box of things to consider um, in conversation. I, 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 first, I would love to see an inventory of broadband in the Great Lakes. And um, it is a really great point because I would say out of the 12 podcasts we've done, four or five people just could not access this through their computers and mm. had to call in because their internet access just was not capable of managing it. Um, so, And these are not areas that are re that remote. Um, so the access to broadband isn't just up in, you know, the Upper Peninsula. The, there is just, um, you know, an issue. I've been on places not too far from Toledo where my phone just wasn't going to get any connections, uh, even though I could see, you know, land a couple of miles away. So I, I get that and find that as an interesting point. Is uh, ASAP, are you providing training for communities that are kind of think, planning ahead or providing them with tools? In other words, is there kind of a checklist of best practices and things to consider as you, as uh, communities plan for the future? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you know, what we do here at ASAP is, you know, we train the folks who are either starting to think about, you know, all aspects of climate adaptation in the work that they do, um, including climate migration. And so we have a few different ways um, or, you know, a few different um, topics on which we reach um, communities directly. Um, and in, in each of our training programs, you know, we try to include examples of, you know, what climate migration means in that context. And so, um, and, and similar to like how I framed, framed a lot of this conversation, you know, uh, from a kind of like a, a um, opportunity space, you know, we also, we like to talk about climate migration as what we call an adaptation strategy. And what that means is like, again, we take the fact that people are gonna move as a given, and then we say, how can we kind of run with that, right? And chant and like it's support people in making sure that the movement of folks that does happen, you know, happens in a way where the people themselves and the communities that they leave and the communities that they move to are going to be more climate resilient. And so, you know, first I'll just say, you know, that's kind of the the way that we are um, trying to reach practitioners and communities with um, 
you know, kind of action on climate migration is like, okay, how can you use this as an opportunity to adapt to climate impacts? And then um, in terms of the, the specific trainings that we provide, um, so for example, we have a training for communities that's focused on getting funding and finance for your climate resilience work in your community um, and making sure that the plans and the projects that you're putting in place are you know, ready to kind of go the distance, to be able to be implemented and to have the resources to be implemented. And so you know, that's one way we reach communities um, and, and try to support them in thinking about um, what, does, what does climate adaptation broadly mean in their community, but more importantly, how are they going to get that work done. Um, we have, we are just starting to develop um, training and education resources specific to climate migration. Um, and of course, we've done a ton of work um, specifically on climate migration into the Great Lakes region, which is transferable to communities in other regions um, that can expect to see in migration. Um, and so we're, we're just starting to kind of gather, you know, what all those resources are and, and think about how we want to deploy them to communities. And then in the meantime, we're reaching communities with um, training programs that are really focused on climate adaptation and climate resilience broadly, where we then bring in climate migration as one of those adaptation strategies that we're teaching um, within that whole package. Really, I want to give you kudos for um, working to finance the planning portion. Plans tend to be, you know, people love to um, get funding for, you know, physical hard infrastructure, um, but you have to plan for all those things. And it is more than just the hard infrastructure. There's so much more to it. If you look at it more broadly, I deal in maritime transportation. So ports and coastal areas are thinking about how they're going to, um, you know, uh, you know build their assets, you know, against, they're going to build back better. That's great. But the planning piece for communities is generally the part that's hard to get the funding for. So helping to support them financially and to provide the, the um, outline or the, the format or the, or the baseline of information that they should be considering, which includes all of the climate change things, which is migration as well. Um, I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, a real asset to those communities. And I, you know, for anybody who's listening from a community, I have I really recommend you reach out because I think understanding um, the problems are big. And what average small community has experts on staff, right? That think about that. Mean some people do minor demographics. I got that, and 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 look at the the, the money. I get that, but to really look at the big picture. And um, where you fit within that, where you fit within your community, within the region, within the Great Lakes, and how you're area, your region is going to be impacted by climate changes around the country. That's a pretty sophisticated question to try to answer and plan for. So the more resources that exist, the better. And I can appreciate that planning for the Great Lakes is like planning for anywhere else. And um, I'm really happy to hear that you're really trying to make this um, um, really productive, right, um, uh, towards solutions, as you would say. 
Yeah, and I love how you framed that it as kind of like really holistic, right? Like climate migration is not the whole story. And I think that you summed that up so well, Helen. Like, you know, we do provide training and education for communities and it goes beyond just climate migration because climate migration is part of a whole system of things that communities need to be planning for and taking action on. So I, I guess to get to kind of the premise of this, of our conversation is that it is likely that there will be climate migration to the Great Lakes. But it's also likely that people will be migrating to the Great Lakes for jobs and opportunities because of a wonderful quality of life, um, because they want to see their families. So um, I guess it's the whole package. But would you say that, um, that this is a critical moment for the Great Lakes um, as it relates to the climate change impacts they're going to have um, from the migration part? So I think that what this is a critical moment for is it's a critical moment for communities around the Great Lakes and the Great Lakes region as a whole to think about what do we want our region or our specific community to be working towards? Because these folks are unlikely to come tomorrow. Right. I mean, unless, God forbid, there's a major natural disaster and, you know, I could go into the reasons why maybe people would specifically move here. But, you know, like that's not it, we're not going to see an enormous influx of population that really changes our land use patterns and changes the culture of our communities. It's not going to happen overnight. And so what this is a critical moment for is to do that foundational planning and visioning for when people do ultimately come and they come in large numbers and it does create that, you know, what we can, you know, what we predict and hypothesize could be a seismic shift in at least the size of the population and all the things that come with that, that we're ready for it. And we're ready for it not from a risk management perspective, although that's important too. We've talked about some of the risks that we want to be able to manage, but we're ready for it from the perspective of seizing that opportunity, um, both to really make this the place a place that's welcoming to people, um, but also, you know, make it a place that's going to be able to sustainably support a larger population over the long term. So I do think this is a turning point and a pivotal moment, um, but it's very difficult because long-term planning is hard to do. It's hard to do politically. It's hard to wrap our heads around the fact that climate impacts are worsening in part because we're like the climate impacts that we're experiencing aren't as severe as the climate impacts people are experiencing elsewhere. So it's it's hard to kind of get on our feet and to do that visioning and to do that planning. But, you know, we can expect these, well, I shouldn't say we can expect because there's a lot we don't know, but we do hypothesize that this is kind of like 30 to 50 years out, this is what we're going to see. And this is the time that we have to be getting ready. Well, you know, um, we are, I, I, it's relative about how the Great Lakes is experiencing climate change. I'm from Lake Erie. So the algal blooms um, are traumatizing, frankly, um, changes your perception of, 
you know, what you can do when you're up there because you can't get in the water, you can't go fishing. Um, they are toxic. It's, it's a, it is a crisis. And they used to happen once in a while. And they happen all the time. However, um, I, I guess the point on that is, and I was interested that when you kind of do a search on climate change in the Great Lakes, just last September, Bloomberg um, wrote that while the Great Lakes looks really great, it can't be a refuge to anyone if it ha- if the Great Lakes doesn't take action now to adapt to its own climate change, right? Its own changing impacts, um, and um, because bringing more people into that's only going to exacerbate a problem that is growing for the Great Lakes. And so uh, I do think that that planning portion you're talking about is absolutely essential, um, and it is just more than telling someone, hey, you should go buy some property, you know, right now, because it's going to be, you know, it's going to boom. And um, I just think that's such a naive way to look at it. Because also, when you get there, you might find you just have a different set of problems. um, And um, that could get worse from, you know, pushing more people into an area. I'm grateful, though, I do want to mention that um, a couple of episodes ago, we talked about conservation heroes in the Great Lakes. And it is incredibly heartwarming to hear how much is being done to preserve lands, open lands, farmlands, um, uh, wetlands, forests. I'm so grateful for that um, because um, there are going to be pressures on the existing land, no doubt about it. Um, And um, whether we um, look at the Great Lakes as, you know, the water refuge or, what are perceived as a healthier environment or just one that doesn't have um, the impacts that you're seeing in other coastal areas, um, um, in, including the loss of water in California, um, it, 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 it's going to have its own things and you have to take, bring a sense of responsibility to it as well, I guess I'm trying to say. And um, so, um, so what keeps you up at night, Rachel? Honestly, what keeps me up at night is the way that people experience both climate impacts and these kind of like land use change pressures and affordable housing pressures that we've been talking about, like the way that people experience those so differently and the way that our culture, you know, and this is not unique to the Great Lakes, although I think that there are, (laughs) we see it really acutely here. It's like the way that our culture almost doesn't allow us to like understand things from other folks' perspectives. Um, And I truly believe that if we want to transform into the region, like into a a prosperous region, not to say that we're not already prosperous, but like, you know, the, the basically the best we can be, we have to do that together and we can't leave folks behind we can't leave anyone behind who's already living here. Um, and we can't leave behind the people who will come here to seek safety. And I don't think that we're ready culturally to really do that work. So that's what keeps me up at night. Wow. The social engineering piece is always the big challenge, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, um, yeah, I, 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 I just I'm so grateful that ASAP is kind of smack dab in the middle of that and continuing to bring people together to share their expertise, their ideas. And um, please keep pushing um, to um, to make the policy, you know, the decision makers um, make the right decisions. Um, 
I don't know if you can get into the cultural piece on that with ASAP, but I can appreciate that it certainly is worth bringing people together to talk about that for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Rachel, really, thank you so much for sharing your insights and expertise on the issue of migration and climate migration and impacts to the Great Lakes. Like I said, really, please keep bringing people together. Your work is really important. I uh, learned a lot about it today. I'm, gosh, I, I'm thinking like a lot of people we didn't realize um, just how deeply this issue went and that there, it, it's kind of a relief to know, uh, comforting to know that there's folks like you out there um, really bringing those folks together to talk about it in a, in a meaningful way. So thank you so much. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. It was really fun to chat with you. Would you like to just um, share your website if people want more information? Yeah, we'd love for you to check us out at adaptationprofessionals.org. Thank you. Well, this wraps up another episode of North Coast Chronicles, Tales from the Great Lakes. Again, we'd love to hear from our listeners. Send me your comments, ideas for future podcasts, or to be a sponsor to northcoastchronicles at gmail.com. The opinions expressed on North Coast Chronicles does not necessarily represent the opinion of the U.S. Department of Transportation. Join us next time on North Coast Chronicles as we kick off the summer of 2022. We talk about the best Great Lakes surfing beaches, the best bathing beaches, and where it's all fun in the sun. Until then, be good to one another.